Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. If you want to learn more about Catholicism, or are looking for materials to evangelize family, friends, and fellow parishioners, please visit the Mary Foundation at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's Catholic City Message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com. Today, a fantastic podcast for you featuring Father John O'Brien, SJ. He is the vocation director for the Jesuits of Canada and my son, Xavier McFarland, who is a third-year seminarian at Borromeo Seminary in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Father John. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here talking with you today. And welcome, Zave. Thanks, Dad, for having me. So, John, uh, we're here to tell uh, men aged 18 and up, basically, about the upcoming pilgrimage we have. Uh, maybe uh, start with telling the story of how this pilgrimage came to be. Sure. Well, and obviously, we're we're still in the planning stages of this pilgrimage, but the vision for it, I think, crystallized rather quickly, but also has been the fruit of, uh, of a lot of things, a lot of percolating things from, from uh, many years even, if I can take the, take the long view here. But uh, mainly it's, you know, we're, we're living at a time where we need a new generation of religious vocations, uh, men and, and women, even though our, our pilgrimage is, is going to be just for men. Uh, at this time, but people who are willing to kind of dedicate their lives to building the kingdom of God in our world today. And that doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's something that uh, we know is the fruit of prayer and also courageous hearts. And what better way to help young men today discern a possible vocation to some form of committed life with, with the Lord than to do a pilgrimage. Pilgrimages have a very distinguished and long history in Christianity, going back almost to the time of Christ. So we've talked about it. We've um, my own founder, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, praises in the in his he has this text called the Spiritual Exercises, which is his famous uh, retreat format. And right in there, he talks about, let's praise pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is a very fleshy, incarnate way to to uh, walk with God and come to conclusions about what, what one's life might be about, what God's will might be for one's life. Well, John, too, uh, I had the honor of being on a pilgrimage with you in October of 2018 to the Holy Land and then Rome as part of the Catholic City Messiah pilgrimage. The Messiah was a television production uh, from Seneca TV. We had about 20 people on the pilgrimage. Usually there's a lot more. There's 50. There's 100 people. And then on our brutal flight home, I believe you were sick, uh, really sick, as we went from Rome to Turkey to Boston to Toronto. Took forever. Um, I think that's when we hatched the plan for this particular pilgrimage, the size of it, as well as uh, to have a focus on inviting young men to 
uh, consider a religious vocation. Now, Zavi, John, what what does that mean? Does this mean that you got to be going to church every day and praying, and you know you have a vocation already? Uh, you know, you're planning and going to the seminaries. I know the answer to this. It's a much different thing, isn't it? Maybe you're part of this conspiracy. What? Um, how would you answer that? <clears throat> well, I guess there's two ways. There's kind of the generic answer in which it's uh, really anybody. This is open to anyone and everyone who's from the, you know, young man who's been dreaming about priesthood from the moment he could think at three to the guy who's, you know, halfway through college or out of college into a career and just kind of hit him one day that this might be something God's calling him to. Priesthood and the call to it is uh, really a wide spectrum of life. So to think you're excluded from the possibility of it due to the circumstances of your life isn't really a good way to go about it because it's just the the uh, intricacies of life and the independence and difference in everyone's own life has so much involved that... It's it's really worth considering for anyone in any situation, pretty much. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're 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 hoping to lead a pilgrimage for young men, and by young, they can be as young as nineteen or as old as as thirty nine. Eighteen. Um, John. Oh, eighteen. Sorry. 18. Yes, we, we even dip as low as eighteen. <laughs> so, um, we're welcome to come with us, and we're gonna bring you to some of. The less traveled and yet uh, strangely powerful religious sites in the in the south of France, and then and then up to Paris, uh, we'll probably we'll explain a little bit where we're going and why we want to go to these places. But we think they're a little bit under traveled, and yet what better places could we go to where uh, they're kind of fountainheads of, of special grace, uh, graces for the 20th and 21st century and graces for uh, young men in particular who want to know God's will for their life. Uh, let's say you're a young man and you're considering going on this pilgrimage, but you're not even sure if you have a vocation at all, um, but you're open. Um, what does this uh this trip, it's, uh, by the way, it's from June 23rd to July 2nd. So if you're in college, you can manage to uh, make this uh, trip and there's time to plan it into your life. If you're, you know, out in the working world, um, what's, what's, we, we basically tailored this pilgrimage for men and for vocations. Could you be a little more specific as to some of the things we We've sort of incorporated into the itinerary. Yes. One of the difficulties with, with customized pilgrimages, and believe me, there's thousands of Catholics who go off on pilgrimages to, to Marian sites, the Holy Land, uh, and they're very pre-programmed. Thousands, and, hundreds and, of thousands every year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's an industry, uh, you might say. <laughs> but well, actually the, millions, several million. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, but for a pilgrimage to be a pilgrimage, you want to have at least two extra characteristics. And one of those is you need to have a strong spiritual side, meaning, um, time for time for prayer and time for reflection. And often on these trips, they're just two whirlwinds because your guides are trying to get you to the next 
site where you can have a photo opportunity, maybe kneel down and have a quick prayer, and then you're off, you're off again. We don't want that. We want this pilgrimage to be as, dare I say, even retreat-like as possible. Meaning, even though we're going to some pretty wonderful sites, we want to build in enough time that, that our, our pilgrims have for personal reflection and prayer. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is uh, we would like it to even have a bit of an intellectual component. Uh, we, we're going to prepare some texts, some, you know, I'm going to prepare some spiritual and theological and, and just some gentle texts that we can get into like you would at a summer session somewhere. You're not some, talking about books. You're talking about uh, no, brief readings. Extracts, our little articles and things that we can read that will prepare us and enrich the experience of uh, attending to the sites that we're going to visit. Like give an example, so, like uh, maybe Aramaeus. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, this is this is one of the key places on our tour. Uh, it's to go to Lyon, France. You've probably heard of Lyon. It's the third biggest city in France. But it's uh, also one of the more ancient ones. It was a Roman city. And uh, there in Lyon, you had one of the great, great uh, fathers of the, of the Western Church, St. Irenaeus, sometimes called Irenaeus of Lyon. And I just I want to underscore, first of all, his antiquity, like just how early he is. Um, St. Irenaeus was actually converted himself from hearing the preaching of St. Polycarp. Polycarp is one of the earliest saints we even know about, who was said to have been converted by St. John the Apostle himself, John the Evangelist. So Irenaeus is like the grandson, spiritually, of John, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. And Irenaeus becomes the bishop of Lyon uh, in just the second century. And uh, I mean, it's been so long. It's almost been two millennia since he was there. But he he wrote some pretty important uh, early exposition of, of Christianity, uh, mainly against the, the heresy of Gnosticism that was, uh, you know, pretty much pretty much the dominant heresy that was always threatening to taint Christianity, kind of a over spiritualizing of of uh, of the faith. Well, sure. So we're going to have uh, an article or two, a homily, a text that everyone as a pilgrim can read. And then we're going to go to the site of his tomb, which was More desecrated and destroyed. The site of his tomb is a church now. Uh, he died in 202, I believe. Uh, but he, then, died, he died in 202, yeah. And 1,300 years later, the Huguenots were kind of uh, French Calvinists and very... Um, how would you say very strict anti-Catholics uh, took out his th- took his tomb, desecrated, destroyed it, and now it's another seven hundred years later, or five hundred years later. Five hundred years later, yeah. yeah. So that, we're going to walk where he walked. We're going to see what he saw to a certain degree, even when we go to the Roman ruins in Lyon. Mm-hmm. Roman ruins, and also I, I think what makes Lyon special is some of the earliest Christian martyrs were from Lyon. Um, if you've heard of the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, I mean he shows up in in Gladiator, Gladiator, Gladiator. Right. He's the old he's 
he's he's uh, Maximus's uh, uh, general who who dies uh, in the, the field towards every, the beginning. Everything I know about Marcus Aurelius, I learned by watching the movie <laughs> Gladiator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some people know him as a great philosopher. You know, he wrote uh, he wrote some um, philosophical texts called called his Meditations that uh, were kind of representing the Stoic philosophy. Right. When you hear the word Stoicism, a lot of the the classic text for that comes from Marcus Aurelius. So he, he was a very, he was a very literate, educated man, but unfortunately, he was not very friendly to Christians, and he launched a persecution. Um, from, uh, well, around the time that Irenaeus was a priest in the Church of Lyon. And uh, now he escaped the persecution because of the time it was launched. He was actually on a mission bringing uh, bringing a letter to the Pope at the time. Uh, so while he's in Rome, the persecution takes, back, takes place back in his home city in Lyon. And it's when he returns there to what's, it wasn't called France then, it was called Gaul, uh, he returns to Gaul, and he is named only the second bishop of Lyon. He's named the bishop. And uh, so another place we can visit is kind of the sites that are, are more or less where many of the Christian, the early Christians, uh, were martyred as well in Lyon. And that's just one one part of one day in Lyon. We're going to be in Lyon, I believe, for four days. Uh, maybe we should backtrack a little bit and uh, hear from Xavier. Uh, Xavier, he prefers uh, Xavier in public, but in the family we call him Xavier. Uh, Xavier, Xavier, why don't you just tell us about your vocation? How did it come about? When, when did you get your first inkling? Did you ever move away from it? All that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So, um, in my family, we you know we we were pretty devout Catholic, so it was one of those options right next to NFL superstar, president, and spaceman. You know, when you tell the three-year-old little boy what he's going to be when he grows up. Um, and so it was it was on my mind in that sense, but not in a really serious way uh, until in about sixth grade, I had the, the fantastic idea of a sixth grade boy that I was going to make it up to God for all the sinful things I had done by being a priest. And um, I didn't tell my parents that, but I told them I was interested. They took me around. I talked to a few priests. Um, ultimately that kind of died out because doing something for that kind of reason is a terrible reason to do something and it didn't last, but it did plant a seed and that seed, uh, stayed dormant pretty much until in high school, I went on a few retreats back to back over the summer. Um, one was a week long retreat with, uh, very intellectually heavy, very prayer heavy. I stayed with an order called the brothers. St. John. John. Um, they're actually from France. Maybe we, uh, the pilgrimage can run into a couple spots where they might be. Um, and there was a lot, a lot of prayer, a lot of adoration, mass every day. Prayer I wasn't used to. I wasn't used to that heavy amount of prayer. Um, and it, it wasn't on this retreat, but I'm convinced that the, the attitude I took on that retreat led to it. Um, on a later retreat, I was helping, uh, as, as one of the leaders for the retreat. My role was the, basically the assistant to the priest on the retreat. And that was the first time I was exposed to priesthood uh, from the human side. Um, it was a younger priest, he was in his mid-30s, somewhat newly ordained, and I just saw him as the human man that he was, you know, cracking jokes that were sometimes funny, sometimes not, seeing him set up before Mass, talking to him, you know, small talk, where he grew up, that kind of thing, seeing him really as a, a human being just like me, doing something 
that hypothetically I could do. It was the first time I let the thought of being a priest actually exist in the way someone might think about a future career option, though it's not the same as a career um, that they might actually take seriously as an option in the future. Um, and, and at this point, you're still a couple years away from even thinking right. About this was summer. the summer before my junior year of high school, so about five years ago. Um, despite all this positive thought towards priesthood, I really didn't want to be a priest because, um, not in the negative sense, but in the positive that I would much rather have been married. Um, I love the idea of marriage. I still do. It's great. Marriage is a wonderful sign of God's love and commitment, a great vocation for people to live out. Um, and I read, I read a lot of theology of the body, a lot of JP2 on that, and had seen the beauty of it and was just super attracted to that. And because of that, I had a hard time letting go. Um, and it was on this retreat in adoration as the assistant to the priest, as, you know, his acolyte during the, the benediction for exposing the, you know, Jesus Christ in his body in the blessed sacrament. Um, I had, I don't know, a revelation and epiphany. I'm not really sure the word for it. It was a somewhat mystical experience. Um, I was sitting in front of the blessed sacrament and I had this, this image appear to me and it was that of a lake filled with water and, and there was a dam and the, the water was all my love and I was waiting to pour that love out in self-gift, you know, very JP2 theology of the body kind of laying down life in that way. And the dam was this block I had set up in my mind of that I, I needed a spouse on, on whom to pour this love. And in that moment, I, I, the image changed and the water just kind of floated up with a force towards heaven. And I realized um, that I could just love God directly and be fulfilled in the present moment. I didn't have to wait. Um, I could... And in that, uh, it occurred to me that I could be a priest. And then I, I kind of heard the words or imagined them or the Holy Spirit spoke. Uh, it's one of those strange things I don't know how to describe. And I heard, you are going to be a priest. And then I said, darn it. Well, I didn't say darn it, but I said something <laughs> along <laughs> those Jersey. lines. Yeah. Um, it was, I surrendered to it is the point. And in that, I had a, a massive inflowing of peace at that moment and not from that moment onwards necessarily. Um, cause uh, I didn't, I didn't know where the seminary was. I didn't really know how priests came end, about. End up there. Yeah. They, I just kind of, <laughs> you know, they were there at the parish and that was it. Um, so I, I did some Googling. I found out that Cleveland actually had its own seminary. And um, I contacted their vocations director. It's pretty, you know, easy to do. You just kind of search it up. And, and I've, I've talked to him since then. It turns out this is actually the most common first contact people have when considering a vocation as they Google it. Uh, makes sense given, you know, the way my generation is. Um, but until really I entered, and even then I was all over the fence, back and forth constantly. I, I haven't, I hadn't really settled down on the idea of priesthood really until sometime this year have I become more comfortable with it. And part of that is that vocations are a discernment process over time. It's not, it's not a commitment of your entire life locked in from the first moment you say, you know, I think I might be a priest and they lock you in seminary for nine years. It's not they, like that. They say the opposite. Is it just try it out for a year? Yeah, they're in a, at least in our seminary, I'm pretty sure it's similar in, in others from those I've talked to. They're very clear that it's a year by year 
thing. You know, they want you to commit to a full year, not to just come and go too quick to find out. Commit to a full year, take that year, and then at the end of that year, look back over it, figure out where the leanings were, what things made sense, the re- a real process of discernment over time. And, and things that help with this are like retreats and prayer and looking at where your heart is drawn, especially in moments of grace. And so a retreat like this one or a, a pilgrimage like this one to France where it's not just stepping back to you know a pilgrimage house or, or a, excuse me, a retreat house somewhere in you know, a locality nearby, but really going to the holiest places where the holiest people live their lives seeing that kind of thing, praying in that kind of a place, having a spiritual director available with Father John. Those are the kinds of things that can give a lot of clarity when the decision's not clear. Because that was something um, I didn't have until I got to seminary was that clarity. And even now, it's it's not a perfect clarity. It's not something that ever you know, appears one day. Um, it just slowly manifests over time in lots of small ways. And so... I mean, I guess that's how I am where I am with, with my discernment, how I am in the seminary and why I'm, why I'm still in the seminary and didn't leave over the last three years is because, you know, I've seen enough. I've learned more about myself and found an attraction to the priesthood that I can't stifle despite myself sometimes. You even thought about leaving this year, right? Yeah, I was uh, closer to leaving maybe than I've ever been internally at least. Um, and something about, Thinking about leaving with a seriousness gave me the freedom to stay with a seriousness. That's interesting. John, have you heard that kind of a story uh, before the seminary, but the back and forth, uh, the sort of it's a, it's a faraway call at first or a nag. Um, tell your, uh, how, oh, your yeah. own story because I feel like I lived through that one. I've known, uh, <laughs> just for people listening, John, if you don't mind, your father is a very famous Catholic novelist and yeah, uh, yeah, world, well. a world-class artist in his own right. And uh, I've been friends with him because I'm, I'm a novelist as well. And through him, when you were, what, 20, 21 years old, that's when I first met you? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I was yeah. an undergrad. So we yeah. became friends. Your father's a little older than me. It's like we're all in, it's like you and, you know, I was, you know, 30-ish years old when I first met you and you became my editor and you've edited your father's novels as well and um, oh you were were we talking earlier today about your brothers and the contrast with you why why don't you share your own story (laughs) sure sure okay well yeah first of all you should say you're 43 now and you're dating two years ago that's right two years in May I think Yeah. yeah May 20th um, yeah, but first of all, just uh, thank you, Xavier, for, for sharing that bit about your, your vocational journey. It, there definitely were elements in what you just said that reminded me of my own discernment and the process of um, appropriating a, a vocation. And uh, yes, it's true. Yeah, I grew up the son of a Catholic novelist and painter who, uh, who was the head of a Catholic home. We, we were pretty devout and for certain stretches for daily mass kind of Catholics, my mom would take, take me up to uh, a Benedictine monastery in our town. Uh, I grew up in British Columbia near Vancouver. And, uh, so all those, you know, that was very, very important where the seeds that were planted when I was young. I give a lot of credit to my parents, you know, for, for handing on the faith 
uh, and then planting, planting these seeds. Now, so I was about 12 and we moved across the country to Ontario to a new place. And, uh, and, uh, you know, my interests kind of changed. They moved on from there, but I always, I always care. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, but you know, a lot of the, if the saints are to be believed, the the seeds of a vocation are planted when one is very young, almost always. Now, what we do with them is another question. And uh, it took me quite a few years to properly discern and pray through them. Uh, but, decades? <laughs> decades, no less. Yes, thanks. Give me a paper cut. Pour <laughs> lemon juice in it. No, it's, it's true. Um, but I was blessed with a lot of wonderful priests who would pass through our house when I was young, um, starting with my parish priest back in, in BC, British Columbia. Like he, he was a great young priest. He, he took all of us altar boys, you know, hiking and on excursions. And I mean, he, he was very active, athletic kind of guy. And he just really modeled what, uh, what an attractive kind of living out of the priesthood was. He was very prayerful too. I remember he once confided to us that he, one thing that was sacrosanct for him was he had to have his hour of prayer per day, his holy hour. If he didn't do that, um, he knew his priesthood wouldn't work. So prayer was, was a huge priority for him. So yeah, and then I actually ended up going to a minor seminary, which is a high school seminary for a number of years, trying to test out my a possible call. Uh, I thought I hadn't heard anything yet, but I thought that's probably the place you would go to to hear something uh, from God if he was calling me. And uh, it was while I was there that I had my first encounter with Ignatian spirituality or the spiritual exercises retreat. I did it for two weeks, this retreat. I was like 17 years old and I did the silent retreat for two weeks. It's a very very intensive. Um, I'm not sure I really knew how to pray all that well, but you know, God just, God accepts our prayer such as it is, whatever level we're at, you know? John, just real quick, uh, many of our listeners may not have ever even heard of the Ignatius method of discernment, often done during a retreat. Well, I'm sure we're going to have a modified version of it during our pilgrimage. Why don't you give it the kind of a thumbnail, uh, description? And, and you know what, uh, Xavier, when you were telling your story, I remember when you were in high school and, and they called parents in, I met with the vocation director. He gave me a book on Ignatian discernment. Uh, this is, he, 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 Ignatius sort of is the father of discernment in the church. His methods have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. He lived in the 1500s. Um, and laymen, it's not just for discerning a vocation, discerning anything. And I read the book and I came to the conclusion that I needed to learn Ignatius discernment in my fifties. And uh, I also came to the conclusion that I didn't know if you had a vocation. That was one of the interesting things to me. Um, no one can tell you that you have a vocation, right? Right, safe. Sorry to cut you. We're going to come back to you, John, but. Um, I can't tell you you have vocation. Your aunt can't tell you because she thinks you have a vocation. But remember that? 
Yeah, yeah, that was actually um, one of the better things about my case because I, I've talked with a lot of my brother seminarians about their stories and um, a few commonalities lend towards towards the extreme where it's like one guy was like, well, my mother says she knew I was going to be a priest from the time I was born and, you know, that's what kept me out of here for so long, that kind of thing. <laughs> the, or um, the polar opposite where someone basically was, you know, living the lifestyle of the world, the college lifestyle, and then one day they were just struck over the head with the the depravity of their lifestyle and the emptiness of it. And, the, you know, one guy says that he the only thing that got him through the darkest period of his life was um, a rosary someone had given him. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know how to pray it, but he knew it was something special. And it was, you know, the, so there are, there are far extremes in terms of who tells you what you're going to do with your life. I tended actually to be quite in the middle where probably because of the, the book my dad mentioned reading, um, the understanding that this is not set, this is not easy to figure out, and this is not necessarily something you can see 100% in other people. Though I would say um, some people, especially it seems to be older older ladies in parishes, have a knack for seeing young men and having a sense of which ones might be called towards a priesthood, and they're they're clearly they're, the ones who voice it too. Yeah, and they're praying for you. Yeah, the guys out here listening to this who may have feeling a little tug, those old ladies are praying for you, those holy old ladies. So, although the, the, John, the vocation director in me has to jump in here and say, sure, uh, if there are guys out there listening to to this and have heard the the, the holy lady in the parish tell them they have a vocation to the priesthood. Uh, they, they need not feel that that was an oracle from God and that they automatically, therefore, you know, do right. have a vocation. But it is, it's, you know, pay attention to the, to our, we call them wisdom figures, you know, people who've been around, live in the Christian life, you know, they're, they're close to God through their prayer. Um, sometimes they're given a special word. A prophetic word. Maybe your it could be that your aunt sent you this podcast. Mm-hmm. It, it could be. I'm sorry. It could be that your aunt, uh, you know, give you a link to this podcast, or your mother or your grandmother, and you have a lot of respect for her. Um, so that could be a wisdom figure, or an uncle, or obviously, or a grandfather. Um, right. One of the things, though, that my I, I'm always grateful to for my mother. One thing she probably doesn't remember remember saying this, but uh, one thing she said to me when I was younger was, uh, you know, son, your father and I don't really we don't really care what you do with your life in terms of career or profession. And I don't we don't ever want you to feel pressure from us to do anything, because the only thing we'd want you to have is Jesus in your life. She literally said this, you could dig ditches for a living, and if you have the Lord in your life, we'd, we'd be happy. <laughs> so it was a beautiful and very freeing thing for me, and it, taught, it, it, it spoke loud and clear that there was something very, very precious to, to them as, as Christians, and that was to have a relationship with the Lord. And so I carried that with me for many, many years. But just to pick up on something you said earlier, but about uh, my brothers. Uh, oh yeah, also, I love this this part. <laughs> well, it's just a little thing, and and it's also picking up on what Xavier was just saying about the types of people who get called. Uh, if we there's relay. all types. Yeah, if we were <laughs> there playing are, odds in your family. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would. I, I even remember something you said to me years ago before I was a Jesuit. Uh, but and that was um, you're kind of the worldly one in the family, aren't you? You said that to me. I don't even know if you remember that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I remember thinking, oh, you yeah, were. I am, strangely. Yeah, I am. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's why I, I joined an order or charism that's very much in the world, but hopefully in a sanctified way. But my, yeah, I have two younger brothers. I have, I'm the oldest of six kids and I have, um, two, there's three boys and three girls and my, my two younger brothers, uh, I would have pegged for the priesthood if I was basing that just on conventional notions of what a seminarian or a priest is, you know, someone who's, they're pious, they're just good. Like everyone, everyone knows they just kind of emanate kind of an honorable way of living. And, um, now both of them are married now and have young have started young families. Did both remember, go to the seminary too? Oh, uh, one of them one, one of them did. did for some time. Uh the other never did, but he was he was literally praying the liturgy of the hours on his own and was studying Latin and Greek and and was seriously considering it. But uh he in the end, you know, you have to wait for the Lord to to offer you that that little something extra you know it's what xavier you were describing about as as something like an epiphany before the blessed sacrament um it's the lord's initiative always our job is simply to dispose ourselves to be willing and receptive to to answer that call and xavier if i can also follow up on something you said that was that i think is profound about discerning step by step or year by year this is something I had to learn too. It's that uh, even though we dive wholeheartedly into whatever we believe the Lord is leading us into, uh, it's always in faith. If it's a Christian vocation, mm-hmm. it's it's followed in faith. You know, Jesus says, mm-hmm. "Follow me." He doesn't say, "Hey, here's the roadmap for your whole life." He says, "Follow after me," and His Word is a is a guide for us, but you know, it's it's a lamp for our feet. It's not a spotlight shining a hundred miles down the, down the road. So that's some, and that's the same with the married life and just about any Christian vocation. And it reminded me of when I was professing vows. So you mentioned in the diocesan seminary life, how, you know, there's many years of study and residency and kind of discerning more and more as you enter more deeply into, into the nature of your vocation. No, I joined. I joined an order that's a little bit crazy. Like where the the Jesuits, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, you know, is a bit intense. He's like, he's like, if you're going to be a Jesuit novice, and it's a two year novitiate instead of a one year novitiate, but over the course of those two years, you're going to be doing a lot of different prayer and pilgrimage uh, experiences that are going to tell you pretty much whether or not you're called to be a religious. Uh, and so you're going to take your vows, your perpetual vows, at the end of your novitiate. So I remember doing them. I remember I had joined the Jesuits. Um, I, I had also been on a retreat, and I was meditating on a passage from the Gospels. You guys know the one. It's, it's uh, Peter invited by Jesus to step out of the boat and come towards him walking mm. on top mm-hmm. of the water, i.e. doing something that's normally not done. Like it's, it's in the natural world, you 
we can't humans don't walk on top of water so what's what's it all about well it's the lord saying come and do what you think is the impossible as long as you keep your eyes fixed on me and you'll be able to do it and instantly in my own prayer that was associated with becoming a follower of saint ignatius being you know doing this within the society of jesus which had all these wonderful and tremendous missionary saints and and a legacy of martyrs and Francis Xavier, the, the North American martyrs, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, the, the they were tough guys. They were, they were tough guys. They still are, many of them. But John, just for the record, how old were you when you entered the, the division? Well, I was, okay, I was, I was about 31. Yeah, and, 31. Yeah, because I had. I know you were pretty old. You were already starting to lose your hair. I know that. <laughs> um, and then how many years from that perpetual vow after two years until you were ordained? For me, it was about 10. Uh, it was about nine years, nine and a half years. Uh, so I was, and that's a bit short for a Jesuit, uh, but I had, I had already studied you had philosophy. Degree, yeah. You had mm-hmm. degree. Now just to, couple, to cut in with some practical notes here. Um, if, if you, don't know anything about priesthood or seminaries or how all that comes about. Um, Twelve years is um, about as long as it takes. The Jesuits are known for their rigorous formation, um, especially intellectually and in uh, external training in the world. Right, whereas diocesan, um, diocesan, five years, yeah, right? diocesan training. And uh, given that you you have college uh, college degree or something like that, and maybe um, particular prerequisites in some areas of your personal life, can be as short as five years. Or um, if you come out of high school, it's usually around nine years. So if you heard that 12-year number and kind of jumped out of your seat a little bit, um, don't worry. That might not necessarily be how long it might take. And, again, it's it's not a 12-year commitment when you sign up. It's a, a one-year commitment, and hey, you're not locked in. It's 12 years to get out. You know, um, uh, I should say I went into the seminary uh, after college. It, I lasted five months. I uh, have no regrets. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, including to a certain degree. There, there might be guys out there listening who've wondered. I kind of checked that off, checked that off the box, meaning I know I don't have a calling. It's not literally. You can't just decide you want to be a priest and sign up. I guess you, you could, but that's not the, really the way it works, as John was saying. Uh, it's a, it is a calling. It was something destined for you. Uh, by God, you can accept it or reject it like anything else. God won't love you any less. Right, John? God might That's want right. you to be a doctor. And if you become a dentist, he loves you all the more. Um, so if there, there are guys out there probably like me, I was an idealist. I wanted to make a sort of, uh, a big gift of my whole life. Uh, it, I did. I didn't discern. I wish I had had that book that they gave you, Savior, and or gone to a Ignatian retreat with John. I just jumped right in. Um, it was wonderful. You know, I recall like uh, one of the best things when I was in college was actually I knew some seminarians and I hung out with them and I was friends with them and they kind of had an effect on me. Um, one of the things I'm looking forward to during this trip is all the time that we have set aside for the men who are going. So it may very well be you want to go on this trip because you have a real strong sense that you might have a vocation 
or you have a, just the slightest sense, uh, you can come and kind of discern one way or another, right, John? You, you could get to the end of this and either have the tools to continue discerning uh, that you don't have a priest, uh, call to religious life or a priesthood, but then you'll be more certain of it, of whatever other path uh, God wants you to take. Uh, I just went on a big, long talk there, John. What do you think? <laughs> no, that's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, but, yeah, because the Ignatian method of discernment or Ignatian spirituality, <laughs> one of its greatest attributes is that it, it doesn't have anything that's like a foregone conclusion, at least from the human side. And it, it really honors uh, the value of indifference, holy indifference to God's will, meaning, uh, well, St. Ignatius believed that the creator is perfectly capable of communicating with his creature. And our job is simply to place ourselves before him. Maybe we need to grow a little bit in our trust. Uh, maybe we need to really, really you know, absorb the fact that God is good. And oh, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but do we really believe God is good and that he has the best intentions for our lives? If we did, I think we'd, we'd be more willing to place ourselves uh, at his disposal. But St. Ignatius can help us there. And the way he does it is he proposes a method uh, ma mainly known as the discernment of spirits. And one of the things we'd love to share with uh, the guys who come with us on this trip are some of the tools of discernment. And, and prime among them are the rules for the discernment of spirits, which is Ignatius's way of saying, you want to know how God might be speaking to you? You want to know what God, God's will might be for your life? Well, the first place to start is your own interiority, your own experiences inside of you, in your heart, mm. that, he, that he calls desolation or consolation. Desolation coming from a not-so-good spot and, and consolation, of course, coming from the spirit of consolation, which is God. This is the basis of Ignatian spirituality. Ignatius is kind of a, a scientist, you might say, who's like empirically looking at the data of your spiritual life and saying, you want to know what God's will is? It's where the consolation's coming from and, and what it's pointing to. Yeah, I, and I would add that, uh, let's say you, you, and it, your friends, your relatives, maybe even your parish helped sponsor this trip for you. Um, you, you get an extra job in, in the summer, um, and you come along with us. If you learn these tools, I, I use them every day, John. My life has been transformed by the Ignatian method of discernment. And my life as a result has become a lot more peaceful. I have this inner knowing that I'm in God's will. Mm -hmm. Um, and some, and you, you know, I, I won't go into it, but you're a very close friend of mine, John. You know, some of the things I've been through in the last few years. Um, even if something is difficult, if I've had proper discernment, um, I'm at peace about it. Uh, so it could be you come on this retreat, maybe you don't have vocation to retreat slash pilgrimage. You don't have vocation to the priesthood, but you will go away with tools that will shape your life in a good way. That's right. Yeah, the rules of discernment are not just uh, for discerning your vocation in life, but they're tools that can be employed in daily life thereafter. You know, they they help they help you identify what is the source of the inner movement 
to use Ignatius's term there, the inner movement, what's its source, and then what to do about them. And, how you, to, and you've been mm-hmm. leading this, uh, you're a Jesuit, that's one of the things that you've been leading young folks, uh, people who discern vocations, mostly primarily uh, people who aren't interested in vocations for, that's one of your specialties. That's why you're vocations director. Well, well, yeah. Well, first of all, <laughs> when I was a novice, uh, Jesuit novices do the 30 day spiritual exercises. So I had my own sort of experience of data, data from my own spiritual life to draw on, uh, in order to understand the rules and to apply them. And yeah, they are teachable. Like they're Ignatius is somewhat notorious for being like very blunt and pithy. <laughs> and so they're distilled into 14. 14 rules uh, for the spiritual life, discernment, and they're teachable. I've taught them. You can learn them anything from like the one-hour sort of crash course uh, fire hose version of of the spiritual rules, or I teach like a 14-class uh, week-long version of it as well, which is probably maxing sure. out. And then the you give uh, 10-day retreats, weekend retreats as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so... Oh, also, that'll be part of the pre, uh, you know, not an entire book, but we'll have our recommendations for reading from Ignatius because we're, we have a special place we're going to go, uh, yes, in honor yes. Ignatius when we're in Paris. Yeah. So one of our final sites on this pilgrimage, um, which by the way, I think we should, we should maybe start at the beginning. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna start at Lourdes. Yeah. And Lourdes is probably the best known place we're going to visit, the very famous Marian apparition site where Our Lady appeared in the mid 19th century to St. Bernadette, uh, whose body has remained incorrupt ever since and had messages to By her way, to give that, to. That is an ongoing miracle. Uh, very, uh, very few of our listeners may even know there are incorrupt saints. What that means is. Um, the human body starts to decay and corrupt immediately after death. So yeah, here we are, uh, 170 years later in St. Uh, Bernadette Subaru. Her body is like the day she died. You get to, we're going to go see it. We're going to venerate it, as they say. That's right. And, and like last year, I had the great privilege of touring an incorrupt relic of uh, St. Francis Xavier, the great Jesuit uh, companion of St. Ignatius of Loyola, well, missionary he's, he's in the story. The he's in the story, too, of where we're going to go in Paris. Yeah, so we're going to end up in Paris, and we're going to visit the beautiful Gothic churches of Notre Dame, the, the Church of Sacré-Cœur, and Most then we're going to go Most beautiful church have... in the world, as far as, far as you're concerned, too, as well. The Chapelle? Oh, Saint Chapelle. Yeah, yeah, it's this jewel of a church, uh, of a Gothic stained glass church. But um, we're also going to visit one of the oldest churches in Paris, which is the Church of Saint Pierre, and it's uh, it's the it's the church where Ignatius of Loyola, Francis Xavier, Saint Peter Faber, and these first companions who founded the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits profess their vows, their first vows for the first time, poverty, chastity, and obedience, making them, consecrating themselves to spend the rest of their lives uh, in service to the church and the world, even before they were ordained priests. So it's, uh, there's holiness everywhere on this itinerary that we're, we're going to follow. That's right. 
Xavier, um, how has the discernment of spirits helped you? Maybe help some of the guys you're in the seminary with. And uh, also talk about being with, you were maybe more than most a young man, but typically a lot of the young men in your seminary didn't know seminaries. They didn't know priests like John did when he was younger. Um, just being with other guys who were taking that kind of possibility for their life seriously. What's that been like for you? Um, well, the, to answer the first part of your question, um, well, I guess to answer both, going to a place specifically with a purpose in mind, even on your own, um, is, can be very effective. You know, a lot of people speak of, um, you know, they have a room in their house that's a place where they work or that kind of thing, a, a particular desk, just a focused spot. And so this is kind of an analogy of that. Um, but doing that in a group with other like-minded people in similar situations where you can bounce things back and forth off each other or their shared shared experiences um it's really a it's really a wonderful way to discern um and in in my own life i've had experiences where in in the seminary you know there's it's a nine-year process so that means there's nine years of people before me who i'll know and nine years after so the whole time i've been there i've had this vast trove of experience i can draw on of if I run into a problem, I can go talk to a guy a couple of years ahead of me, see if he's had a similar thing. And it usually somebody somewhere has had something more or less along the same lines because most of the reasons people, you know, it's a Sunday night in February and you're lying alone in your room after curfew uh, doing nothing and you're feeling like seminary was a bad decision, like that's that's a pretty common occurrence for, you know, anyone who's sane. So... <laughs> Um, just having the, the common shared experiences. So something like a retreat and this pilgrimage where it's a group of young men or, you know, a few guys who might have had some experience in the world who you can run questions off of. 20 ask, young men. Yeah. Ask 18 how, to 35, 39. It'll be every age. You know, you can get those answers to questions you, you wouldn't be able to get on your own or on the internet or anything like that. And then throw that in with a good Ignatian discernment of spirits. And it's, it's really an invaluable um, trove of just knowledge and, and wisdom. And one way in particular, I guess I can use an example to talk about the discernment of spirits is um, one of my good friends, my classmates in seminary, um, his first year that he had a really good friendship with a, a girl from the, the university where we work um, sometimes. Um, it, was a good, it was a good friendship, but it was a challenge for him because obviously being a you know, young man discerning priesthood in a seminary and having a good close friendship with a similarly aged woman it, it, it puts a challenge on that as you might imagine and there's conflicting desires like i said in my own in my own life i, ha I had that strong and i still do have you know a desire for marriage and it's it's hard to balance that desire so where ignatius and his discernment can come in is you can see at least in one particular way you can try to see the source of of the the movement the inner movement he would say and so in the case in my case or in, or in my my classmates case um well we kind of to, to lay out a really just simple ground rule ignatius would say there's three sources of movements there's you yourself you know that makes sense you influence yourself um there's god or the holy spirit and then there's the, the enemy the evil one 
And so one of the first things you can do is try to figure out the source of any inner movement, any, you know, sense or feeling. And the more my classmate looked at it, the more he saw that desire for marriage, that desire for, you know, spending time around this particular girl was a movement that originated from himself and not necessarily from God's call. And, you know, in, in other cases, it's, it's more obvious, like, um, you know, to buy a really fancy car you can't afford or um, to eat that extra cookie. There are certain desires that are pretty clearly not from God. Or in my case, the extra 40 cookies. Yeah. The entire package. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Xavier, as you're talking about this, uh, for those of you who don't know what Xavier looks like, he's six foot five. Uh, he's a weightlifter. He's a uh, fantastic rugby player. I remember when uh, you were senior in high school and they found out on your rugby team that you're going to go into the seminary. Uh, they started calling you Father, right? Wasn't that your mm -hmm. nickname, Father Xavi? Uh, some of the guys called me Father X. Some of it, yeah, Father X. Some of it was good-hearted good uh, ribbing. Some of it was scoffing. Um, often, I'm the parent of a seminarian, and sometimes people say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But the the typical reaction is, especially if they know uh, what a sort of healthy, handsome-looking young man you are. I can see it in their eyes, or sometimes people have the lack of courtesy to actually tell me out loud, what a waste. Or doesn't he, you know, you know, well, he's smart, he's, he's athletic, he's good-looking. What a waste. Why, you know, it, it's true that the culture we live in doesn't necessarily respect the, the gift of your life to serve others, to serve the church, to follow Christ. And um, one of the things I'm, when John and I were talking in the early stages, as we we're coming back from the pilgrimage, I remember personally looking forward to bringing 18 young guys, 21, 22, and 15, however many uh, God calls to come on this pilgrimage, where they could be with guys who aren't going to make fun of them or scoff at them or look, give them the side eye or think that it's a waste of time to even consider uh, giving your life to Christ. It's the, act, it's the exact opposite. Christ gave everything. He himself forsook marriage for our sake, made us his bride. Um, it's a noble thing to even consider um, and to be around other guys. It's, the hard to, it's just difficult to be around that many men who consider it. Any thoughts, John? Uh, you're, I mean, you're literally uh, a, re a vocation director, meaning you're the one who, if young men are considering the Jesuits, and this could be, if you might want to be a diocesan priest or Franciscan or, or any of the different numerous kinds of uh, Catholic, ways Catholic men can become priests. Um you're around these guys. What are their experiences? Uh, what do you tell them when they run into the interference from the world? And, and yeah, well, well, say, everyone, what do you anticipate on this on this pilgrimage? Yeah, well, everyone's a little bit different in terms of who their peers are and what their home environment is. But uh, running into a bit of opposition would be normal. I mean, that's that's very, very much 
part and parcel of uh, what Christian discipleship is in the modern, in any any age of this world. Um, but I, I most most people I've found most people they might be puzzled by a, a young man's decision. To, yeah, puzzled. To consider it, but they're rarely they're rarely like disparaging or or um, you know mocking. It's yeah, it's more intriguing. I think I think might be the better and more common reaction of, of people. Of course, of course, if they're devout Catholics, then they'll they're supportive and they're. Uh, of, of anyone who's who's going in this way, as a vocation director, one of the very first things that happens after having a good long conversation with the vocation director is you start going to events uh, like come and see weekends and retreats and things where you get to meet other like-minded uh, guys, and you realize you're not alone. That there's many others journeying in this way. In terms of any kind of opposition, though, I, I just find at least speaking personally for myself, that it, um, and it's the same being a priest in the current climate of the church and the priesthood in North America with, with all the clerical abuse scandals. And anytime there's like opposition and uh, a negative climate challenges, I just, to me, it just makes me want to be a better priest, honestly. It just, it almost motivates me more to be more faithful to my vows uh, to serve God's people in a more committed way, to try to be more anchored to the source, uh, which is Jesus in prayer. Um, there's something about Christian discipleship that thrives when it's challenged. And uh, so that's that what that means is in good times and in bad, there's there's a lot of focused enthusiasm for for the vocation to which we've been called. Yeah, I, I had to learn this early on. When I was in, when I was professing my vows, um, I guess a major milestone, and it's two, like you said, it's, it's two years into Jesuit life, but it's for life, and so existentially, like as a as a guy saying vows, it was it was a rather momentous thing. And I don't know if you know this about how the Jesuits do their vows, but it's in the context of a mass and the uh, provincial superior, the, the top Jesuit of your whatever Jesuit province or region you live in, in our case, it's all of Canada, is doing the Mass, and right before communion, he holds up the Eucharist uh, for the for the elevation. And But before he says, Behold the Lamb of God, you come forward with your, your novice classmates, and one after another, you profess your vows of perpetual poverty, chastity, and obedience in our case. So I had done this. I, I said the vows. We were well prepared. I We retreated and prayed over these, you know, something I appreciate about the Jesuits is we discern everything to death a little bit. But anyway, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd definitely prepared for this moment, but nothing prepares you to, to kneel before your, the God of all creation present in that host and say, accept me. Uh, for the rest of my life under the terms of, uh, of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so I had done that, and I was a, a little bit emotional, actually. Uh, kind of gone back to my pew, and I'm kneel- and you receive communion. And then, so I'm kneeling there, and I, I hardly knew what to pray other than, oh, my God, you know, I've just, I've just vowed my life. Um, <laughs> and so 
I remember praying something like this, God, this is, you know, I've prepared for this. I'm convinced it's your will, but I'm still walking in faith. I, you know, in a little bit, the darkness of faith, but with just enough lights to know that this is where you find mm. me. But it's a little bit overwhelming, God. And honestly, it's done now. And the rest of my life, God, is now really up to you. You really have to carry me because this is mm. a little a, a little bit beyond me still. That was the nature of my, my prayer. And you know what I heard? I heard, like, in my prayer came this response. It was something like, well, it was something like a slow clap, like, very good. <laughs> Bravo, John. You're finally getting it. <laughs> this is what vocation is. It's to allow me to carry you for the rest of your life. And it's so true. I can attest to it that, like, my life ever since I said vows, um, up to and including my priestly ordination, has been, pff, man, he makes... He makes it easy and the way straight. Like God does the heavy lifting. We have, we still have to play our part, but I mean, he does the heavy lifting. That's right. Xavier and I were at your ordination. Yes, you were. I was so, yeah, I was so glad to see you there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I think we probably have about 10 or 15 more minutes left tops. I wanted to talk about backup, something that is extraordinarily unique about the first annual Catholic City Men's Vocation Pilgrimage to France is that we have two extraordinary forms of prayer backup. The first is that uh, the Mary Foundation has a website, Catholic City. That's the the mother of uh, this podcast, let's say. And we have an email that goes out to 70,000 people all over the planet, mostly in the United States and Canada. And these people, it's probably someone who, if you're listening to this podcast, someone from Catholic City probably recommended it to you, probably a relative or a friend or someone close to you. Uh, they will all be praying for you every day when we're on this uh, pilgrimage. You're going to have tens of thousands of people praying for you. We'll probably have uh, some representatives of you know, Catholic laymen, couples who are going to be supporting us there, praying for you while you're there, all over the world, people praying for you uh, while we're on this tree. You can just count on having grace of from the mystical body of Christ. And uh, we can also, we have a second form of backup in that I've been in the habit of writing to the poor Claire's uh, they are the contemplative sort of uh, Marine Corps of the church. Uh, there's two co-missionaries of the church, St. Francis Xavier, the greatest the missionary of all time who converted, but hundreds of thousands, John, all over the world, he, from India, all over Europe, um, without microphones, without the Internet, uh, without even knowing the languages often of the countries he was going to. Um, and we're going to go where he made his perpetual vows, uh, and sit the co-patron of missionaries. Now, most Catholics don't know this is St. Therese of Lisieux, also from France. Well, after we go to the mass at that little chapel you described where, where Ignatius and Savior made their 
perpetual vows where you go to uh, to the top of Montmartre, it's called. Uh, I probably pronounced it wrong. Um, to Sacré-Cœur, to uh, uh, Basilica, right, John? No, cathedrals, Basilica, Sacré-Cœur. It's, yeah, it's the Basilica, it's, which is dedicated over, to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful spots in all of France. I mean, it's on this hill overlooking Paris. You look down, you see Paris, and... I, maybe you'll have time. You can describe how it even ended up being there. Um, so that's the sacred heart of Jesus. Sacred Cœur means the sacred heart. Uh, Saint Therese's heart is preserved in Sacred Cœur. She's my patron. She's co-patron of the missionaries. I am going to be writing to, well, by the time you're listening to this, I've already written to all of the Benedictine contemplative nuns in the United States and Canada, all the Carmelite uh, contemplative nuns in the United States and Canada, and all the poor Claire nuns who have had my back for going on 30 years. I write to them regularly, tell them what's on my heart, ask them to pray for the Mary Foundation. They are going to be, by by the time you get to France, they will have been praying for you. Uh, Even as you're listening to this, the graces are available to uh, start thinking about coming and how to get yourself there to be with us. Um, these are the store. These are the real so To me, they are the real sort of tip of the spear for conversions, for people finding their way in life, for people becoming closer to Christ, to having a friendship with the Father through Christ um, and through the sacraments. So you have backup. You've got people all over the world praying for you. Uh, people all over the world pray, uh, all these uh, nuns who have already given their lives, already answered their calls, um, praying for you while we're there. That's exciting. To me, that gets me really psyched. Um, you're not alone. You're not going to be alone with the other guys. You're not going to be alone. There'll be lay people there helping us, supporting us. There'll be people all over the world just who have your back. Yeah. So that's one of the great things of the Mary Foundation and Catholic Catholicity, but it's the way you're able to rally so many Catholics who, who read your books and uh, visit your website and Stupid. are beneficiaries and distributors of your of the Catholic CDs. Um, just thousands of people across America who will be praying for us on this pilgrimage. And, and for the discernment and vocations of anyone who comes on. And I'm going to be bringing on a little hard drive. I've, this is the fourth pilgrimage, the first vocation pilgrimage. The fourth pilgrimage in four years. I bring uh, tens of thousands of intentions of Mary Foundation benefactors with us on an encrypted hard drive. And uh, we've been to Fatima. We've been to uh, the great oratory of St. Joseph in Canada and the Basilica of St. Anne in Quebec, to uh, Rome, to the, this year to the Holy Land. I take these intentions with me, and we sort of kind of hide them in the holiest places on earth, uh, right near right where Jesus rose from the dead, or where um, you know Jesus was conceived in Nazareth uh, just this past October. So we'll have these intentions with us. So if you're a young man joining us or an older man joining us, um, on this truly unique, I don't know. I've never heard of anything like this, um, in the Catholic world. You'll be, uh, helping pray for these intentions for the people praying for you 
they will be, you'll be praying for them. You'll be sort of representing them uh, as we go to uh, these holy places. We can't, we can't uh, end this uh, podcast, John, without talking about Paralimonial, uh, which is outside of Lyon and the day that we're going to be there and what happens on the next mm-hmm. day after we go to Paris Limonial. Took me about what four months to figure out how to pronounce that. <laughs> Not quite that long, Mr. McFarland, but uh, well done, well done indeed. Yeah, yeah Paris Limonial. So yeah, Lourdes, Lyon, and Paris. Those are the three main anchor points of this trip. But when we're in Lyon for the bulk of the trip, we've got these day trips to some pretty special places, and uh, one of those is Paris. We could say Paré for, for short, but Paré is the place where St. Margaret Mary Alacoque received visions of Jesus Christ, and with the help of her Jesuit spiritual director, who's St. Claude Le Colombier, um, helped interpret them and create the whole, what we know today is the whole devotion to uh, Jesus with his heart exposed. It's just a... Burning just, with love. It's be, it's God is love as as Saint John writes right and we humans yeah. we just got to learn that over and over again we keep forgetting that so we're gonna go to one of the one of the holy source sites of of that you know of those graces uh, as they came into the world the church at Pare Lemonial on the feast day of the Sacred Heart of Jesus Friday the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus at the place. Where Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. It was, I believe it was in the late 1600s, 1670s, mm-hmm. uh, for a few years. It was an ongoing sort of relationship she had with him when he, he came to visit her. Um, and what is it that's special about St. Margaret Mary Alacoque now, 350 years later? She is also incorrupt, right, John? She is also known to be an incorrupt saint. Yeah. And by the way, we should just say, like, incorruption is not meant just to be a sort of sensational phenomenon uh, for the sake of sensationalism, but has been seen by the church since the earliest days when the earliest Christian martyrs were found to be, uh, some of them incorrupt uh, and their, their bodies venerated, was taken to be a sign from God that hey, there's something very yes. particular and special about that person that I want you to pay attention to. And um, I message so through them. Mm-hmm. Particularly on this trip, because there's the incorrupt... We, we already talked about Bernadette Super, who's incorrupt at Lourdes, where we'll begin. Now, St. Yeah. Margaret Mary at uh, Paré. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to France, we'll be going to the Rue de Bac, which is the back street, the Our Lady of Victory Shrine, where Our Lady appeared to uh, Saint Saint Catherine Labouré. Yeah, Catherine when we go Labyrinth. to Paris, and when we go to the capital city there, Paris, she's uh, one of the we'll, more we'll go uh, visit. stunning and corrupt bodies. She's in a case. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. she died five minutes ago. Her her mm-hmm. skin is pink, you know, her mm-hmm. cheeks rosy. Uh, it's an ongoing miracle and also a sign of our own resurrections. Jesus appeared to the apostles in a glorified body. And we'll receive a glorified body. So this is also a sign of our future, um, as well as a signal to the whole world that there's something special going on through the saint or at this particular site. That is the site where Jesus or Mary gave 
uh, the world of miraculous metal, which is mm-hmm. quite exciting uh, to be going to that particular place. Um, we're just highlighting here too, John. I mean, there's uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, um, a special uh, monastery that's that's again near ours, and then near near Lyon. Yeah, Lyon. we'll go visit a Trappist right. monastery, and then another day we'll go visit ours and. St. John Vianney, uh, also, great patron of diocesan right. priests and priests in general. My father, so, uh, my father's been there, John. I know you have too. And he said that of all the places in the world he's been, that was the most spiritually moving when he stood outside of the confessionals where, mm-hmm. uh, St. John Vianney spent hours and hours, day after day, thousands, tens of thousands of people coming from all over the world, all over the sort of European world, especially at the time. He lived in the 1800, late 1800s. And he, uh, you know, that's one of the beautiful callings of being a priest is that you have, through Christ, have the power to absolve sins. And so he's dispensing the mercy of God as a special part of his calling. He's the patron of? Well, parish priests. Yeah. And, and it, you know, he, he was a powerful, powerful priest. He wasn't very intellectual at all. He was a simple man, but he just channeled uh, God's grace just through his uh, fidelity mm. and his faith. Uh, it is said that the devil, it, like he also practiced discernment of spirits and some spiritual warfare as well. And the devil is said to have said about him that if there were three such men alive in the church, like St. John Vianney, that his reign or his power would be at an end. So In the world. And, uh, oh, also on the next day after on the Feast of the Sacred Heart going to Paralimoniel, we will be going to, we'll be back in Lyon. We're calling it the Ancient Father. That's, this is the day of the martyrs of, uh, St. Irenaeus, uh, St. Irenaeus. And we're going to, uh, attend an ordination of Das and priests in, uh, Lyon. Yeah, it just happens that the in the Archdiocese of Lyon, they're having their annual ordinations on the day that we're there, and we've actually been invited to to attend. So, anyway, all these things are just a wonderful sort of symphony of, of uh, visits and events and pilgrimage sites that uh, I think will just crescendo into a tremendous experience of, of powerful grace for all those who who come. All right. Do you have any final thoughts, uh, Savior? Um, not particularly. Um you know, pray about it, think about it, ask other people about it. Um, if financial burden seems like a problem, you know, don't be afraid to go to your local parish priest or if there's a Knights of Columbus council, they are always willing and happy to provide in areas where it's difficult, um, especially for young men or, you know, those with college debt like that. Um, extended family. mm -hmm, Very generous. So even the, if you have a diocese as a seminary, uh, Go to the seminary. They might be willing to help you as well. Mm-hmm. I would also add that um, the cost, you go to Canterbury Tours. It's uh, catholiccity.com. Uh, it'll be associated uh, in the, it'll be a link in the, um, in the podcast uh, page. And uh, the cost is the minimum. We, uh, the, Canterbury Tours, which is sort of coordinating all the travel and, and accommodations. Um, they, uh, they typically do not do tours that are this small. I just happen to know the owner. They are part of, you know, supporting the mission of this pilgrimage. But there's 
There's no fat in, in the cost. That's about what it's probably less than you could do it on your own, much less. So, um, you know, there's a, if God wants you to go, he has all the money in the world. He has all the silver and all the gold. You can find a way to, to go if you feel called. Uh, John, do you have any, uh, just sort of practical advice? Let's say there's a young man going, this is the worst podcast I've ever heard, but despite that, I'm interested in going. <laughs> on the uh the pilgrimage in the retreat um for what they can do right now they've listened to this podcast they have an interest in coming maybe or an inkling or an itch that's got to be scratched what do you suggest they do over the next hour of the next day or the next two days in terms of uh your your experience as a vocation director I would say the first thing they should do is uh, go do some data gathering, further data gathering. Uh, and in this case, it would be go to the website and just see see what the, the pilgrimage looks like the, at CanterburyPilgrimages.com or Catholicity.com. And the second thing is, I think, talk it, start talking it over with someone. Like, bring it up with the person that you would bring such things up with Um and, you know, just debate the various merits of coming on a tour. It's a very streamlined tour. It's only, how many days is it, uh, about? It's, like, uh, eight or nine eight, days. Eight days? Yeah. Eight days. Yeah. So it's, it's not going to take a huge chunk out of your summer, but I think it's going to be disproportionately significant yeah. for your life. So. Sure. And, and then, uh, and then pray, you know, just pray about it, of course. And, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe. Even if you've been away from Mass for a long time, go to a Catholic Mass, and when they raise the Eucharist um, during the consecration, just be open. Be open to what, what, whatever. You know, have the courage to say, I will do and I will go wherever you want me to go. And maybe the answer is no. Maybe you want to go on the pilgrimage, this pilgrimage and you shouldn't go. Um... But it's, it's not like don't wait till we're going to start discerning. No, yeah. there's the spots are are you know limited. But it, you know, I whether you whether you've been wrestling with the idea of a of a vocation to priesthood or or consecrated life, there there are distinct things that can overlap, but there are distinct vocations. Um, but whether you've been wrestling with them for a long time in your life and you want. You want a singular experience. Uh, if this is the moment where you'd want to really, uh, really kind of get to the bottom of, un you have some unfinished business with God that you want, um, or whether you simply never thought about it before until now. Either way, and everything in between, it doesn't matter. Uh, this may be, may be the occasion of. Um, Hearing the still small voice of God in your heart uh, at, at any one uh, of the locations that we're and, going to, and probably make a, make friends for life. There's going to be a best buddy, best friend on that on this tour uh, pilgrimage. I'm certain of it for anyone who comes. How about you, Zavi? Any final uh, advice for for these guys having been on and off the fence and struggled with your vocation and been happy in your vocation? If you do do it, you won't regret it, um, regardless of where you end up. You know, God's not, you know, this isn't like a trap he's setting up to catch you so that you have to be a priest um, or anything like that. And if you go on it and discern towards priesthood, 
you know, be well worthwhile. And if you go on it and discern, you know, 180 degrees away from priesthood, it'll be an, an invaluable time of prayer and discernment and also just, you know, wonderful opportunity to see these places and, you know, these saints, these holy sites, churches, architecture. You know, you'll be in Europe and France. There's lots of things in France to think about. Um, but I think I think that that kind of wraps up our conversation for tonight. Sure. And uh, John, also, you've been to France. I've been to France. The people in France are some of the most welcoming, loving people on this planet, even today. To this day, there's all these things that you know they hate Americans. This and that. That will not be our experience. <laughs> no, well no, know. of course not. Um, That's one of the things you learn when you travel the world. Is most of the stereotypes are, are not true. No, the France is a wonderful Christian, you know, a, a country with an enormous Christian heritage, and uh, you also see will see the best of, of Christian culture on display as well. There, are, there, there's much that the French can teach us about uh, about living life joyously and uh, enjoying life uh, vividly. So. Thank you, John. Uh, maybe to wrap up, we'll have, we'll have a short little prayer at the end, if you'll lead us, Father John. Uh, but I want to go, just go over the URLs. Uh, just Google Canterbury Pilgrimages. It's easy to, it'll be easy to find this pilgrimage. Or you can go to catholicity.com. That's catholicity.com. Actually, Catholic City, any kind, any way you could possibly spell it, .org, .net two C's in the middle. Don't worry about it. It's easy to find us. We're one of the biggest Catholic websites in the world. And uh, from there, you can go from there. So, John, okay. you... final prayer. Yeah. Well, why don't we, we cast, we can ask the Lord's blessing upon everyone listening to this podcast right now. So if you're listening, maybe just close your eyes and unite yourself uh, interiorly with the words of this prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for creating us, for calling us into existence, for redeeming us on your cross so many years ago, and yet also at all times. We thank you for calling us to discipleship, to vocation, to whatever character you wish to give our lives. We ask you to grant us the ears and the eyes that are open to you in a spirit of trust, in a confident spirit of awareness of your great goodness. We ask you to help us with our discernments as to whether to go on this uh, particular pilgrimage and whatever other discernments we are making in our lives right now. Again, confident as we are, Lord, that you will give us all that we need, that you are the giver of all good things. And so in the company of all the angels and saints, we lift up this prayer to you and ask you to hear it and answer it generously according to your nature and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were inspired by this podcast, and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, 
All we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary recording in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.